All right, we're going to get into God's Word. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and this is actually our last message in this uh, seven-message series. And uh, as we look at these last verses, I'm wondering uh, who you would say is an example to you, uh, someone that you're looking to imitate um, in terms of how they're living their lives. You would actually say, you know, I want to mimic the things that they do. I want to mimic those things in my own life. It, for the millennials in the room, or for those who seek to understand millennials, the kind of vernacular that they would use would be um, hashtag life goals. And, um, and they would be looking at various people to see how they want to live their life. Or you could get more specific and say, uh, you know, hashtag parenting goals, or hashtag marriage goals, or hashtag friend goals. And really what that means is that your goal is to be a, I want to be a friend like that person is a friend. I want to have a marriage like that couple. I want to parent my kids the way those parents are parenting their kids, the way that family operates. And the idea of watching and imitating the lives of others is rooted deeply in the Scriptures. We may not think very much about it. As Christians, we ought to be following how other more mature, further along than us Christians, believers, are living out their life for Christ. and, And we ought to copy that. And in today's passage, again, our final section in 2 Thessalonians, we hear Paul say, and remember, he's writing on behalf of himself and Timothy and Silas, who are part of this little missionary group, and he says this, you'll hear it in the passage when I read it in a moment, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. You Thessalonians know how you ought to imitate me and Timothy and Silas. And they were really intentional in giving them verse 9 is going to say this, an example to imitate by how they lived in light of what God's word said to them. And this passage, of course, is going to compel us to see the same thing, that we are all to imitate Christians who are worth imitating. And so uh, let's read the passage. I've already prayed. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll uh, step right into it. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 6 and through to the end of the letter. Now we command you, brothers, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
Well, let's see, uh, see this first. I already stated the uh, kind of driving principle of this message. Uh, I am to imitate Christians that are worth imitating. Uh, there are plenty of Christians. There are plenty of Christians not worth imitating. Amen. There are plenty of Christians not worth imitating. And we'll talk about them in a few minutes. Uh, but there are plenty of Christians, and we can be encouraged by this. There are plenty of Christians who are worth imitating. And the first issue to deal with, though, is the mistaken notion that we shouldn't be imitating people at all. And I know some of you, even as we're talking about this, getting into this, and even hearing the scriptures, you're like, yeah, but I don't think we should be really imitating one another. I think we should only be imitating Jesus. And you sound so spiritual when you say that. It's so not unusual to hear Christians you know, the, the expression is that we Jesus juke them. They say something and then we kind of throw Jesus at them and, and it, it kind of jukes them out. We Jesus juke other Christians and we say, oh, I'm not into following people. I'm just into following Jesus. You know, you kind of say that. Or, or, you know, you need to get your eyes off of people and get your eyes on to Jesus. Which, all, again, all sounds super spiritual, but is biblically wrong. It's wrong. And it was the Apostle Paul, he actually hits this theme several times in several of his letters. In, in the, letter to, the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He said, be, imitator, be an imitator of me. He didn't say be an imitator of Jesus. He said, imitate my life the way I'm imitating Christ's life. Now, that's obviously a really important qualifier. To the Philippians, he said this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And Paul wasn't the only one who hit on this theme. Peter said this in his first letter. Peter told the elders that they are, and this is 1 Peter 5, 3, that they are examples to the flock. And he's, he's called them shepherds already. And so he's using the flock analogy to refer to the church. So he's carrying the whole metaphor through. You, you as leaders, you as elders, as pastors, as shepherds, you should be examples to the flock. People should be able to look at your life and imitate it. Evidently, in some cases, it's absolutely okay to have your eyes on people. And so Paul says here, back to our passage, verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Now that word imitate, let's just unpack it a little bit. It's not really a super complicated word in the original language. In Greek, it's translated imitate here. It's mimiomai, which, from which we get the English word mimic. It just comes straight out of Greek and into English, mimic. And Paul, Timothy, and Silas were giving them an example to follow. And he's actually talking about this, though he's talked about it generally in several letters, and we see the example throughout the scriptures. In this particular letter, in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, he's actually breaking down a, a, a particular example of how they needed to imitate his life. This is a specific issue. He says, because, you can imitate us, because we were not idle. We're going to talk about that word in a minute. We'll define it in a few moments. We were not idle when we were with you. Verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to all of you. 
So Paul and his, and his associates had some kind of trade. Uh, Paul at one time is called a tent maker. And, and what they were doing is they were a traveling evangelistic, church planting, missionary preaching team. And they were going around to cities that did not have the gospel and preaching the gospel. And so that, in effect, was their job. But when Paul says they were working night and day, if they were preaching at night when people were available, that meant that during the day they were plying their trade. They were actually working so that they could support themselves. And there was actually a problem in Thessalonica. This is, this is going to become so important that they worked to support themselves because there was a problem in Thessalonica with idleness. Members of the church, listen now, disrupting the harmony of the church. That's a very important phrase. Believers in the church, disrupting the harmony of the church, undermining uncommon community in the church because of the demands they were placing on it. Now, the, the letter doesn't tell us, Paul doesn't tell us what exactly the problem was with regard to the idleness. In other words, what caused this idleness to happen? It could have been, and in the culture, wealthy people who might have come to Jesus. There was a whole thing in the, in, in the culture where wealthy people just wouldn't do anything for themselves. I mean, they just have other people do things for them. But when you become part of the church, like the whole playing field is just level and there's no socioeconomic strata here in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no rich and poor. It's just totally irrelevant. And so if, if rich people were being asked to kind of do some things in the church, they might have become idle and not doing it because they thought it was beneath them. It could also have been that poor people who were part of the church were thinking, hey, look at this uncommon community and look at the way they have everything in common and look at the way they have all this money that they're sharing with one another. We don't ever need to work, man. We're part of the church. They're going to buy our food. They're going to they're give us clothes. We're going to be all taken care of. We never need to go to work. And so maybe they were idle because they just felt like the church was going to take care of them. Most of the commentators, however, look at this passage and, and, and because of the context and everything else that Paul is talking about here, really believe that this was an issue of, in both letters, Paul deals with things pertaining to the end times and the coming of Jesus and correcting some wrong theology about that. And so they really are concluding that there were people who just quit their jobs and were sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. They felt that the coming of Jesus Christ was so imminent. It was going to happen at any moment. Why should I go to work? And some of you, some of you right now are just going like, I would love to be convinced of that and not go to work tomorrow. I'm just not even going to go. And so they were just sitting around idle focusing on the coming of Jesus Christ, convinced of that particular uh, point of doctrine and belief, and just stopped working. Now, Jesus' return is indeed imminent, but the part they were forgetting was that when Jesus comes back, he wants to find us working. He wants to find us fully engaged in the mission and ministry, fully engaged in life and working at his return. And so for their part, Paul and his posse, they went to Thessalonica. They did not request or receive the favor that was actually common to preachers like this. Namely, to be compensated for their work, for their preaching, for their teaching, taken care of financially. That was actually the norm. But for whatever reason, when Paul and Timothy and Silas came to Thessalonica, they decided we're going to work here. We're not going to take anything from the church. I don't know if they anticipated that this was going to be an issue in Thessalonica, um, if they had been warned in some way. I don't know what it was. Let's just say the Holy Spirit worked in them 
for them to say, we're going to work night and day, we're going to preach, and we're going to support ourselves. And so they took nothing from the church. He says this in verse 9, and this is so important to understand this. Paul says, it was not because we do not have that right. We could have asked for compensation, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so we worked. You should be copying our example. You should be working. Imitate us. Mimic this kind of Christian behavior. That's Paul's point here. Now, listen, we're coming off of an amazing high five week. And again, you got a sense of that um, uh, just before the message and in the video and the music that we um, did here. And at least in part, I want to say that high five is about getting kids here so that they can see examples that they can follow in their lives. Getting kids in front of leaders and helpers who are worth imitating. We sing to the king, we teach the word of God, we have fun activities and we, we express as much joy as we can possibly express so kids can see that following Jesus is filled with joy. We take trades and skills and interests that we have and, and we apply those in all these different electives and we show kids how fun it can be to work on computers, to do robotics, to be a firefighter, to do all of these different things. We want to be examples to these children in life skills. And we want to do all of it in a very healthy, values-driven, and most importantly, Christ-centered environment where these leaders and these helpers are oozing the love of Christ. We're showing these kids something that stands in contrast to much of what they will experience outside of the church. And we're saying to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, even as I say all of that, I know there's an objection. It's so hard to find good examples. That would be one, one objection. And, and then a second would be, you know, I'm having enough trouble just living my own Christian life. I don't need someone watching me do it. You know what I'm talking about? It's just so hard to just walk with Jesus without the pressure of knowing that someone is actually holding me to account for that and watching my example of it. And the thing that remedies both of those objections, are there people worth imitating and do I have to be a person that's imitated? The remedy to both of that is what this series has been all about. It's divine grace, the title on the series. And it takes the, the applying of grace and the dispensing of grace in our lives to have the human examples and be the human examples that we can be. Not one of the people, this is how the grace is applied, not one of the people that you might say, you know what, I, I like that person's life, I want to imitate their life. Not, not one of them is actually worthy of that. Not one of them is able to live up to the ex expectations. Even the Apostle Paul, even his associates, Timothy and Silas, were mere men who were, who were frail, who were sinful, who made mistakes. As the expression goes, and it comes from the book of Daniel, every single person has feet of clay. We're all weak. We're all vulnerable in that way. 
And so plenty of humility required here in both the having of examples and and the being of an example to others because people are deeply flawed. Even Jesus' people are deeply flawed. For every Christian, we are merely sinners saved by grace and fronting that message to anyone who will listen. I'm merely a sinner saved by grace is the starting point of being an awesome example to others. And so I was thinking about this, and, and what, are some, what are some tips? Even if I start to think about who I could kind of look in my life, who could be the examples in my life, I wrote down a couple of things here that I think are going to be helpful. First of all, two quick tips for imitating a fellow Christian. First of all, pray for them. Pray for them. They need prayers. If you're going to be watching their life, pray for them that they would be faithful, that they would, that, that they would press in more deeply to Jesus Christ and become more holy and be the example that you believe they are. But secondly, so critical, don't pedestal them. Don't make an idol of them. Don't look to them as if they're Jesus. Don't expect things from them they can't deliver. Don't demand perfection. Don't expect sinlessness, but apply much grace as you seek to imitate them. And and then I would add a couple more practical things to this. One would be, as you're surveying the landscape and saying, whose life could I imitate? Don't expect that any one person is going to be the example of everything. You know, I've found various mentors and, and, and examples to follow in my life. And, and I, I'm thinking of one man right now, and he was such a phenomenal prayer warrior. And when any time I would be with him and he would be praying, the thing, I wish I were praying with him, but the thing I was always thinking was, I want to be able to pray like him. I want to pray like him. And, and he became an example to me of how to pray. And I think I fall so short of that. I've obviously had people in my life, whether they knew it or not, I've had people in my life who I've uh, emulated in preaching, and I've learned so many preaching things. There are others in, just in the way they conduct themselves or in how they share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Just I've looked at particular people to learn particular things. And we can each do that. And then here's just another practical tip I would, I would give here. You don't necessarily need to let the person know that you're looking at them and seeking to mimic their life. They don't need to know. You can watch them from afar. And there have been many people, especially for Cheryl and I, who we have watched their marriages for, Cheryl and I have been married 30 years this year, but when we were newly in marriage, we were watching marriages around us. And we were like, man, I really love that marriage, I love the way they speak to each other. I love the way they treat one another. We want to have a marriage like that one. They never knew we were watching their marriage. When we started to raise our kids, I mean, our kids are all in their 20s now. They're all married. But when we were raising our little kids, we were watching all these other parents. And we were going, yeah, there's no way we're parenting like them. But then we'd see others. We'd go, like, I, I, we want to parent like them. Look at their kids. Their kids are awesome. And you could see the product of the parenting and go, that's the kind of parent I want to be. So the person doesn't need to know that you're watching them. All right, let's move on. That's the first big chunk right there. I'm to imitate Christians that are worth imitating. 
Here's the second part. And avoid Christians who aren't. Avoid them. That's, that's tough language, but that's exactly what Paul says here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, not only don't imitate them, I mean, don't, don't even spend any time around them. Avoid them. Verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, command, and in the name of Jesus Christ, not coming as a suggestion. Would you agree? Okay. Not a suggestion. This is not like, oh, there's a bunch of different things you could do, but this is a best practice. Wrong. This is a command coming in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you, notice, keep away from any brother or sister. Okay, this is a, this is, we're talking about believers here. And Paul's saying you need to keep away from them. This is going to, this is going to just hit hard. We're going to chafe hard on this. Okay, because our culture is not like this. You keep away from any brother or sister who is walking in idleness. There's that word again. I'm going to define it, but not yet. Hang on. Soon. Who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The teaching or the word of God that you receive from us. So this is the discipline of the body of Christ. This is how we, we discipline one another within the church. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, I want to I make sure we understand who the target audience is here. Professing Christians who are in the church who can work, but are not working. Okay, professing Christians who are in the church, I could even add another element, professing Christians who are in the church who are disrupting the church, who can work and are not working. So he's not harshly targeting the infirmed who can't work, or the old who can't work, or the young who can't work. He's not targeting anyone who cannot work. That's not who he's targeting. It's not his focus. He's speaking directly to those who can work and are not working. Again, maybe because their view of when Jesus is coming back is messed up, or maybe because they're rich and they think it's beneath them, or maybe because it's poor and they're sponging off the church. Whatever the reason is, they're not working and they should be working. They are taking advantage of the graciousness of God's people <laughs> and disrupting the uncommon community of the church. And Paul says, flat out, no more. This has to stop. If you're not going to work, you're not getting any more handouts from the church. You've exhausted their graciousness. If you want to eat anymore, no one's going to give you that food. You need to go and get a job and earn some money and buy your food. The problem went deeper still. And isn't this always the issue? When you have a, when you have a, a, a principal issue, it always then starts to manifest in secondary issues in other words, our sins always compound. And here's what happens, verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. There's the word again. I think I should define it this time. The original language word here, the Greek word, uh, means more than idleness. It means disorderliness. It means, in fact, the King James Version translates it as unruliness. Um, it, it, it means to be, literally, to be, I'm out of line. 
I'm out of line. Here's the line, I'm out of it. I'm not walking in the way that I should walk. And it's, it's disorderliness and it's unruly and it's disrupting the church. We hear that some among you walk in idleness. Here's the secondary problem. Not busy at work, but busybodies. This, this is the problem with idleness. You have all this time now. You're not working. So you have all this time to just scroll through Twitter and get angrier and angrier. All this time to post your own opinions about things. All this time to sit in Tim Hortons and just chew the fat with people and gossip about others and slander others and have an opinion about everything because you're not working, you're not doing anything. You're just pushing your, your business into everyone else's business. The only time it doesn't happen is between 11 and noon when you're watching The Price is Right. <laughs> but otherwise... You're just a busybody. If you're not busy with life and work and ministry, then you're going to have all the time in the world to armchair quarterback every other marriage, every other family, all of your friends and your pastors and just stick your nose into all of it. Now listen, the bottom line is that this group of brothers and sisters were being disruptive to the well-being of the church. They were compromising the church's smooth function by taking advantage of the generosity and kindness of their fellow believers. And again, in a series that's been speaking of of grace, really what they were doing was abusing grace. They were abusing God's grace and they were abusing the grace that was being dispensed to them by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now watch what Paul says next. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now, after I looked at this passage, I was just like, if we were picking a verse that was so offensive in our culture today, this verse would do the job. If I could pick a verse that would just make the maximum number of people angry, this could be it. Because it speaks of obedience, which our culture does not like. We don't talk about obedience in our culture today. We don't take, we, we, we don't take well to noting who a person is. We don't take well to having nothing to do with them. And we certainly don't take well to shaming people in our culture today. And so this, this whole notion that we have, and I want you to hear this, the, the next few sentences, I want you to listen super carefully so that you don't misquote me. Don't take part of this, but you've got to hear all of it, okay? This notion that the church should welcome everyone in regardless of how they live their lives, okay? That the church should welcome everyone in regardless of how they live their lives, that idea is true, It's true on the front end. Before they get to the church, before they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should welcome everyone in and we should be eager to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Amen? Everybody still with me? You're good? You know there's a but coming, right? Right. But once a decision is made for Christ, now they're part of this community. They're part of the body of Christ. 
And once that happens, and, and not while they're a baby Christian and still learning their first steps, certainly not in that stage, but listen, once they start to show some maturity in Christ, they must, like all of us, submit themselves to the body of Christ for continued sanctification in Christ, continued maturity in Christ. In other words, I'm responsible for your maturity in Christ and you're responsible for my maturity in Christ. And when you're getting it right, I want to be encouraging that and blessing that. And you should be doing that for me. And when we're getting it wrong, there's this gentle correction that happens, this disciplining of one another to come alongside a brother or sister and to say, Look, I'm just noticing some things in your life and it just seems like you're a little out of line. And doing that with grace while still bringing the truth to bear on it. We all want to become like Christ. In order to do that, we have to obey the Word. Paul's Word here, the Holy Spirit's Word here. We need to obey the Word of God, which includes the discipline of the body which really is just the same word as becoming a disciple. And we want to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, many don't like the vocabulary choice here. Obedience rubs us the wrong way. Because we've been indoctrinated in our culture today into this whole idea of personal autonomy, that I am an island, that I'm my own person, and no one's going to dictate to me how I ought to be living my life. And when you come to to faith in Jesus Christ, when you surrender your life to Him, you surrender your personal autonomy to become, listen, this is the awesome part, to become part of the body of Christ, the one body of Christ, together with every other brother and sister in Christ. And in that, we have to obey some things. We as believers are bound together in this uncommon community. We are one with Christ And certain responsibilities come with that. We need to ditch the language of no one's telling me what to do. Actually, someone is. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is telling us what to do. The Word of God is telling us what to do. And we can speak that as the body of Christ into one another's lives. As we hear all of that, Paul says... In this case, if someone is idle, disrupting the church, out of line, and unrepentant about that, Paul says, have nothing to do with him. Have nothing to do with him. And then compounds it. I mean, that chafes right there. Really? A brother in Christ, a sister that I love and been in small group with, I'm supposed to have nothing to do with them? That seems bad enough, but also now I need to go the next step and I need to actually set them aside that they would be ashamed. That's not something we normally reach for. But in this case, this is the purpose of God, that to shame a person in order that they, as a believer, we're talking about people who are claiming to be believers, offside with the things of God in order to bring them back because at this point they're abusing the grace of God. And it needs to be called out and dealt with. This, in fact, is God's way of giving his children a time out. 
A lot of parents use the idea of the timeout. And this is God giving you a timeout. He's taking you out of the stream of things. And when you have a timeout, you're being removed from the normal operation of the home. We used to do that at our dinner table. I had no tolerance. I have no tolerance for whining. I have no tolerance for whining. And so like if any of my kids whined once, there were never warnings. Because it was a little ongoing issue. And it was like, very gently, very calmly, very graciously, I'm going to ask you to remove yourself from the table. When you can pull yourself together and get back in line, you can come and rejoin the family. But until such time as you can do that, leave the table. It's gracious, it's kind, it's loving, it's truth-filled. And it preserves the orderliness of the table. When you can pull yourself together to be part of the order of what this is and no longer be disruptive, you can rejoin this. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is what God is doing, what the apostle is teaching us. And here's a qualifier that's so important to that in the same way that when I would ask one of my children to exit the table, I haven't disowned them. As they were walking away, I'm sorry, you're no longer my son. You have been disowned as my daughter. I didn't do that. And in the same way, verse 15 tells us, do not regard them as an enemy. They're not unbelievers now. But warn them as a brother. You're not on a good path here. The point is to continue to show love and compassion towards these idle Christians, even in disciplining them. and, And tell them the truth, because telling the truth is inherently an act of love. To help them get back on track with Jesus. That's a kindness that we do to one another. And all of this is an act of grace. Poured out to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And after all, this is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us, isn't it? The entire human race lives in open rebellion against God. We are, to pull off that word idol, we are the unruly, disruptive, disorderly, out-of-line people because we were born in sin. Living in open rebellion against God, chafing against His holiness and living for ourselves. But Jesus Christ did not regard you as an enemy. The Father loved you so much that He sent His Son so that by His sacrifice and His death on the cross, providing a way for us, and to pull some of the language from this passage, a way for us to be obedient, a way for us to walk in accord with the Lord and with the Word of God. And so He does warn us, and He warns us as dearly loved family, as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, to repent. To agree with His Word and His ways, and to turn from your way to His Repent. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, still tracking here? Everybody still good? I'm to imitate Christians that are worth imitating. I'm to avoid Christians who aren't. Making sure I'm the kind of Christian. Here it is. I'm the kind of Christian that others can imitate. Verse 12. Now such persons, the ones who are idle... We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is a command with apostolic authority to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
So stop hurting the church. Stop abusing grace. Get to work. Mind your own business. Support your own family. Stop sponging off the church. We got all that. Then he turns his attention to the non-idle folks in the church, the faithful ones, the members in good standing who are seeking as best they're able to live for Christ. And he says to them, verse 13, as for you brothers and sisters, as for you brothers and sisters, I love this phrase, do not grow weary in doing good. Talk about a great theme verse for Friday of high five. Do not grow weary in doing good. Keep doing what you're doing. So many of you are being faithful, and I would speak this to you. So many of you are being faithful and working hard and believing the right things and living out the grace of God. Don't let up. Don't give in even when you're tempted to. The Christian life is inherently hard and at times can be terribly discouraging, especially in the face of opposition. Keep at it. Don't relent in any way. And in this sense, and I know only a few of us even consider ourselves leaders and, and, and most of us consider ourselves just servants and I would never want a leadership role, but in a very real sense, in this way, if we're making ourselves out to be someone who could be imitated, we are in effect becoming leaders. In fact, the, the preacher, the book of Hebrews is a sermon transcript. And the preacher in the book of Hebrews said this in Hebrews thirteen seven. He said, remember your leaders. And he's speaking specifically of church leaders in this case. Remember your leaders, those who spoke, the, spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You, by your godly example, you don't need to be a pastor or an elder or a leader of any kind. You may be leading fellow believers in ways that you never imagined. There may be people who are watching your life without you even knowing it. Think about how this is applied in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, in your extended family. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary. Husbands, listen. Do not grow weary at being a husband. Wives, do not grow weary of being a wife. Parents, especially parents of preschool age kids. <laughs> All parents. Do not grow weary in parenting your children as hard as it is. Do not grow weary at being the right kind of friend. Do not grow weary at being the right kind of employee who serves their employer with gladness so that when people in your workplace are looking at you, they're just like, what is with that guy? He's, he loves Jesus. That's what's with him. Do not grow weary at being the kind of employer that employees want to work for because you're so emanating the love of Christ. People are saying, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that woman. Do not grow weary of being a good citizen of your city and of your country. Christian people are watching you and imitating you. Here's the last part. I'm to imitate Christians 
that are worth imitating and avoid Christians who aren't, making sure I'm the kind of Christian others can imitate as I receive the grace and peace of Christ. This is actually, it's a pretty short letter, but this is the second benediction that the apostle puts into the letter. And he says this in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. That's not just like a, a stock benediction he's throwing in there. He's focused on peace, mentions it twice because of these idle believers who were unruly and disruptive and were upsetting the well-being of the church. It was it was not a very peaceful situation. It was causing so much turmoil in the body. And so Paul pronounces a benediction over them that has to do with peace. And then Paul adds, verse 17, just like a little housekeeping note here on the letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It's a sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it's the way I write, which lets us know that Paul dictated this letter to a secretary. It might have been Timothy, might have been Silas or some other man. Um, he did the actual physical, the, the secretary would have done the actual physical writing of the letter except for this part where Paul would have signed his name. And um, this is really common for Paul. In fact, Tertius is mentioned as the secretary in the book of Romans, uh, chapter uh, 16, verse 22. But 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Philemon were all dictated letters. This added, when Paul writes on here, it adds th- this authoritative apostolic a stamp of approval on it and seal of authority uh, with the letter. And especially because at this time, fake letters were circulating. There was fake news everywhere and they needed a way to authenticate it. And Paul had actually mentioned this as a problem at the start of chapter two. And as the letter began, so it concludes here with the very last verse. It begins and it ends with divine grace. Verse 18, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the only way to see any of this happen, anything that we've talked about in this series, the only way to be an example to others in the case of this message is God's amazing, undeserved, and unearned favor in our lives. It has to be received, it has to be lived out, and it has to be dispensed around us to all around us. And does your life show evidence of having that grace? And are you an example to the brothers and sisters of that grace? Let me pray. Father, you are uh, a gracious and kind God in every way. And we would acknowledge again that to a person in this room, we are undeserving of any of this and there's no possible way that we could do enough good works or be pious enough or religious enough to ever earn any of this. We know that salvation is entirely the gift of God. And so we once again, we just say thank you. Thank you for your grace toward us. And God, we would uh, pray that you would continue to be patient with us as we grow in that grace. That you would forgive us, Father, when we abuse that grace. And that, Father, in in every way, we would be growing in our capacity to be an example to the brothers and sisters around us. That, Father, as grace saturates this church, there would be peace here too. An uncommon community that is characterized by grace. 
So thank you, Father, for this incredible, overwhelming, unmatched, and amazing grace that you have given to us.